Well, we've been talking about the prophecies of Isaiah the prophet, uh, who is mentioned 21 times in the New Testament, and whose writings are cited or alluded to around 600 times in the New Testament, far more than any other prophet. Specifically, we've been working our way through Isaiah chapter 40 about the coming of the Lord. Now, many people don't think of Isaiah 40 when they think of Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ. Um, You rarely hear it mentioned in the context of Christmas, for instance. Perhaps that's why we're here. We're in the middle section of five weeks, the third of five, and we're in verses 12 to 17 today. Let me read it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, the main point of the first 11 verses before this section was the coming of the Lord and how his glory would be revealed to all flesh. The second great point that was made in those first 11 verses was that this promised coming of the Lord is absolutely guaranteed for it has come the promise has come from the mouth of the Lord and God's word never fails but now all of a sudden Isaiah is talking about how big God is compared to the nations has Isaiah suddenly changed the subject Not at all. You see, the first 11 verses were about the promise of the Lord's coming. These verses are about who this coming Lord is. So let's take a brief tour of verses 12 to 17. This description of who the promised Lord, the coming Lord is. Is. It begins with a riddle in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills? in a balance. 
So Isaiah brings up four images here. First, the image of measuring the waters of the earth in the palm of one's hand. The second is measuring the heavens with some kind of a yardstick. The third is measuring the dust of the earth in a measuring scoop or a measuring cup. And the fourth is putting the mountains and hills of the earth onto a scale to weigh them to see how heavy they are. And the riddle is, who does this? And the obvious answer is, only God can operate on this level. And so we see, God, Isaiah is reminding us who God is. The waters, you know, the waters of the earth, you think about them, so wild and so scary at times and so forbidding, and yet they're like a little puddle in the palm of his hand. That's how big he is. Now, is this an exaggeration? Can all the oceans and lakes and rivers actually be contained in that palm of God's hand? Well, actually, it is something of an exaggeration. In truth, the whole universe can fit in the palm of his hand. And then there's a second riddle in verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And the obvious answer is, no one. Proverbs 16.2 tells us that the Lord weighs the spirit of man, but no man can weigh or measure the spirit of the Lord. He's just too big. He's too weighty. He is unlimited. He's beyond measuring. We can't figure him out. The depth of the riches Wisdom and knowledge of God are unsearchable and inscrutable, Paul tells us in Romans 11.33. His ways and thoughts are as much higher than our ways and thoughts as the heavens are above the earth, Isaiah tells us later in chapter 55. And then there's a third riddle. In verses, the second half of verse 13 and verse 14. It's a series of six basically synonymous questions. What man shows God his counsel? Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Which I think is better translated, who taught him the right way to do things? which is the way it's translated in the New Revised Standard. Who taught God knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Again, the obvious answer is no one. God doesn't get his wisdom from anyone. He is absolutely wise in and of himself. He knows everything. Nobody teaches God anything. He never had to go to school. 
He doesn't need to read books or peek or pick people's brains. Now, people complain about God all the time. And people act like they know better than God does. And the arrogance necessary to conclude that God has messed up somehow or doesn't know what he's doing is immense. And yet, sadly, we are all guilty of it. Even the very righteous Job did it. That's why God confronted Job at the end of the book. One of his questions was, Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job 40, verse 8. Likewise, sometimes we think we know better than God. We don't humbly accept what he tells us. We think he's wrong. We trust ourselves and our perspective more than we trust God and his perspective. And that's why it's so important that we read and ponder passages like the end of Job and like Isaiah 40, 12 to 26, which put us in our place. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He is the potter and we are the clay. Will the pot say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Romans 9 and Isaiah 64. But then Isaiah shifts from riddles to declarations and answers based on the riddles. In verse 15 and 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then skipping up to verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So in these two verses, 15 and 17, God through Isaiah contrasts the greatness of God compared to the nations of mankind. Now there's a reason that Isaiah talks here about nations. As you know, for many years, the bane of the Jews was living under the oppressive thumb of a tyrant, a foreign nation. At the time of Isaiah, foreign nations were definitely the big threat, especially the, nation of, the nations of Assyria and Babylon. It was an age of empires, and the first... 39 chapters of Isaiah are largely about the threat of the expanding empire of Assyria and the looming threat that they were to Israel and to Judah. Just before Isaiah 40, in the two chapters before, three, four chapters before it, we find the story of Sennacherib, which we've talked about a lot in this congregation when God dramatically delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians. And following that is the story of Hezekiah when he showed off the royal treasures to the envoys from Babylon and God sent Isaiah the prophet to him to declare that Jerusalem would indeed fall to the Babylonians. 
And the Babylonians, after Assyria fell, became the next big threat to Judah and ultimately conquered them. But it wasn't just the threat of the nations that God wanted to make look minuscule to, the, to his people. That's a big part of that. That's the big part of it. It was also the help of the nations. You see, throughout the book of Isaiah, Israel and Judah, as they face these looming threats of these great empires, they're constantly tempted to turn to, the, to other nations for help instead of turning to the Lord. And God keeps coming after them and keeps confronting them and telling them to turn to him and that he will take care of them. But they, they just can't. And so God is eager also to expose the tininess of the help that these nations can afford them in comparison to him by, by contrasting himself with the nations. These nations are no threat and they're no help. Don't pay attention to them. And then in verse 16, the one I left out, he illustrates this point with the example of the smallness of one particular nation. Verse 16 says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon was a small nation, but what was big about Lebanon was its vast forests full of cedar trees and abundant wildlife. So Isaiah seems to be saying that God is so great that even the forests of Lebanon could not provide enough wood for a sacrifice worthy of God that he would even notice. Nor could all the plentiful numbers of animals in those forests provide enough flesh to even register to God as a sacrifice. So the basic message of this section in Isaiah 40 is that God is far greater than even the great nations of mankind. And this is one of the chief themes of Isaiah as a whole. Twelve chapters later, he talks about the great news of the Lord's coming. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Yes, he is above all the things that you're afraid of. He is in charge of all the trials that you're experiencing. He reigns. Your God reigns. Now, it doesn't always look like that. But appearances can be deceiving. The nations of the earth are as nothing compared to God. This is also one of the great themes in Christ's birth narrative in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Even when Mary, you know, is told about being the mother of the Messiah and she gives her great song in the end of chapter 1 of Luke, he, she says, that she referring to God, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. You see, Mary knows what the coming of the Messiah means. 
She knows the prophecy of Daniel that the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria and then Greece and Rome would be followed by the coming of the Son of Man who would crush the other kingdoms and rule forever. And then there's Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at the time. But before God, he's nothing but a servant in the story. You see the prophet Micah in chapter 5 too said the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. And so God had somehow to get them to Bethlehem for the birth. And the way he did that was through Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the earth, decreeing that everyone should return to the place of his family's origin. So Jesus could be born in the little town of Bethlehem. So you see, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1 We can also see this in the involvement of evil, brutal Herod, who was so determined to kill Jesus that he had all the young children of Bethlehem killed. But no one can stand against the hand of the Almighty. God sent the Holy Family to Egypt for protection. But God doesn't always rescue his people like this, does he? There are times when God's children are, in fact, given over into the hands of the wicked. Jesus himself was given over. Yes, and when it finally was time for him to be given over, he himself made it clear that he was willingly giving himself over to their mistreatment. I lay down my life, he said. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord in John 10. And then he said on the cross, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me, send me more than 12 legions of angels? I apologize, that wasn't said in the cross. It was said just before. And then, remember Peter's prayer in Acts chapter 4. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so when Jesus suffered and when Jesus' people suffer, it's only with his permission and only for his good purposes. Truly, the nations are as nothing before God. But this passage doesn't just apply to nations. If the nations are so small compared to God, what about our enemies? What about our problems? What about our troubles? What about our dangers and the threats that we face? If the nations are like a drop in the bucket, how big is my house? How big are my problems, my health, my career, even my family? They are all the more minuscule. Few of us have ever lived in the fear of being conquered by a foreign nation. Few of us have tasted of that danger, those malicious threats 
that dominating power, that vicious cruelty that many nations like Israel really did face. But all of us face dangers and fears and failures and weaknesses. If the nations are dust on the scales, little are these things compared to God. Now I don't want to minimize our problems. They are real and they are painful and often they are overwhelming. It reminds me of the moon at night, which seems so bright in the dark sky that sometimes it's actually hard to look at. But when the sun comes up, you can hardly even see the moon anymore. So it is that some things in our lives seem fearsome and intimidating until God comes into the picture. Then all of a sudden, they look dim and he is too bright to even look at. Imagine being surrounded by a violent, angry mob focusing all their wrath on you. How would that make you feel? Probably terrified. But Jesus is so big that when a man named Stephen was surrounded by an angry mob of Christ's enemies in, John, in Acts, the end of chapter 7, he wasn't terrified. In fact, he wasn't even paying attention to the danger or to the angry mob or that which eventually stoned him. His attention was riveted on Jesus, whom he saw in heaven standing at the Father's right hand. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It overshadowed all the danger. And when we see God, we do not need to fear man. We do not need to fear any threat. But there's another point in this passage that's too big to miss. I said near the beginning of the sermon that Isaiah was not changing the subject in this section of Isaiah 40. He's just telling us about the Lord whom, who he had just promised is coming. And what he says about this coming Lord is that he is so big that he holds all the waters on earth in the palm of his hand and makes the nations look like nothing in comparison. And when Jesus came, he proved to be exactly what Isaiah promised. He stilled storms. He ordered demons around. He healed the sick. He raised people from the dead. He multiplied food. He shriveled trees. He guided great schools of fish into nets. He even walked on water. But perhaps the most startling thing is this, that when this bigger than the world Lord God eventually did come, he came packaged in the form of a little baby. 
I wonder if C.S. Lewis had been reading Isaiah 40 when he wrote this line in the final Narnia book, The Last Battle. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. In the world, people try to make themselves look big and powerful and important. You know, if you study marketing, a lot of it is about how to make yourself look like more than you really are so that people will want to come to you or buy from you or whatever. And when you, when you write resumes, the whole goal is to make yourself look as marvelous and wonderful as you can. We try to make ourselves look as big as possible. It's sort of like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. When he's, the fires are bursting out and the f giant head is speaking with such a resounding voice, I am Oz the Great and Terrible. And then you find out that he's not so great and powerful after all. He's just an ordinary person behind the curtain. Jesus, on the other hand, looked so small and insignificant, even though he was bigger than the whole world. He did not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. We read this morning from Isaiah 42. He never wrote a book. He had no real possessions, not even a home. He never traveled more than around 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He made himself a servant of others. He died the death of a lowly criminal. And yet 20 centuries later, he is still bigger than the whole world. And all the armies that have ever marched, and all the navies that have ever sailed, and all the legislatures that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, all put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as he has. Of course, some of you recognize a lot of that from the great poem, One Solitary Life by Dr. James Allen. And this Jesus, this Son of God, is just as real and just as relevant and just as large now as 2,000 years ago when he walked on earth. The world just doesn't understand Christmas. Oh, they don't mind the special foods and the gift giving and the gatherings of people or even much of the music. But they sure don't like the part where there was one born who was bigger than the whole world. The world loves it, in fact, when Christ is made to look small and insignificant. But you know, it really doesn't matter how things look. What matters is that what God says is always true. 
What matters is that Jesus, the Son of God, is bigger than all his enemies, demonic and human. What matters is that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What matters is that in this tumultuous world that's changing so fast that we can't even keep track of it all, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What matters is that there is nothing more certain than that the work Christ began, he will complete. What matters is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. What matters is that the kingdom of the world will soon become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The people of God near not the people of God need not fear the powerful of this world. The people of God and the powerful of this world need to fear the Lord God in the person of Jesus Christ whom before whom we are all as nothing. Let us pray. Forgive us, O Lord, for how we forget how big you are. O Lord, the world looks so big to us. But it's so small compared to you. Lord, the world is speaking to us. So many different voices around us are speaking to us. But Lord, yours is the only voice we need to listen to. Help us, Lord. And thank you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. May he be not just bigger than the whole world. May he be our all in all. May he be the biggest thing in our lives. The biggest thing in our thoughts. The biggest thing among all of our desires. Thank you now for the privilege of celebrating his coming and his atoning work through the sacrament. Please be with us as we partake of his body and blood. And we pray, O Lord, that you would feed us, Jesus, because, O Lord, we are hungry and we need him. We are weak. He is our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.